This is a content warning. The following episode of Think Digital Futures is not suitable for children. So if you are listening with kids around, pop your headphones in. Welcome to Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson, and this is Cameron Cox. When I first started, the only way you could show people that you were sex working or or sex work was to have a street-based presence. Cameron is currently the CEO of the Sex Worker Outreach Project based in New South Wales, and he's been sex working in the state for the past 40 or so years, during which he says there's been a lot of change. See, when Cameron first started, he says the papers didn't really take print ads. You had to be out on the street. Us guys had along the first part of Darlinghurst Road from Oxford Street where the big sandstone wall for the um, tech is, and it was known as the wall. If you wanted to show people that you were sex working, you went and stood along the wall. After that, he says, times changed, and the papers started letting sex workers post ads in the classifieds. In code, of course. You could put an ad in the papers that said, young man just left school, willing to do anything. You'd get quite a lot of little old ladies who wanted their sinks unblocked, but you'd get quite a few people who actually knew what that meant, and um, you made a little bit of money that way. After that came a new gadget, which meant Cam no longer had to spend all his time by the phone or by the wall. He went out and bought a pager. Your pager would beep and you'd run to the nearest phone box those days with whatever it was, 20 cents, and you'd ring the paging company who'd give you the number of the client and then you'd ring the client and hopefully you'd set something up. In the mid to late 90s, the whole playing field suddenly shifted. The internet came onto the scene and it would change the entire sex industry. It first arrived in the form of hookup sites. The first place I advertised was on a 1200-400 board modem on a message board called Pinkboard, which would accept gay advertising and hookup ads. Yeah, we thought we were like really, really, really Christmas. We've come a long way since the wall. Nowadays, Cameron says he can count the number of street-based workers in Sydney on one hand. Sex work has transformed into a digital industry. Now, almost everything's internet-based. But this is again about to change. An overseas law wants to make the internet out of bounds for all sex work in a bid to stop sex trafficking. Its aim is to criminalise anyone who allows sex workers to advertise on their platform. For Cameron, this is a huge concern. Having that taken away then leaves a lot of people very high and dry because the first couple of weeks, you know, things that we didn't expect to happen just happened without warning. What didn't you expect? We didn't expect the major classified internet sites to go down in Australia instantly. This is a sort of a shock and awe piece of legislation that goes, we can get you for almost anything and then we'll put you in jail for 25 years. It's pretty scary. For sex workers, as it is for every marginalised group, being forced offline isn't just about losing business. It's about losing your voice at a time when you need it most. This episode is about why.
Yeah, look, in the last couple of decades, the internet and mobile phone technology has had a huge impact on the structure and the organisation of the sex industry. This is John Scott, professor in the School of Justice at the Queensland University of Technology. He researches the sociology of sex work, and he says historically it's been made up of three broad spheres. One of those was street work. One of those spheres was brothel or bar work, indoor type work. And another one was escorting, which was more independent. Street work only made up a small part of that industry. But because it's so publicly visible, it's the area that attracted the most negative attention. Now, the impact that the internet has on this is that uh, it means that sex workers can be less visible. And what we've seen is people leaving the street trade and moving into more so into indoor environments and particularly into escort work. These days, pretty much anyone who works privately, which SWAP, Cameron's organisation, estimates is 60% of the industry, they get their income from the internet. And for male sex workers, this statistic is even higher. Probably 90, over 90% of the industry now is online. So that's, that's been a huge change. For many sex workers, it's become difficult to disentangle their online and offline lives. I don't really have two separate identities. My legal name and my work name are very intricately tied to one another, and that was intentional. This is Andre Shakti, a sex educator, worker, journalist and activist. In Northern California, I use all of my social media platforms, which include you know, Twitter and Facebook, to advertise and promote when I'm doing performances at a, at a nightclub as a stripper, to promote scenes that I have done as a porn performer, and also to advertise my services as, as a professional dominatrix. I also use these platforms to talk about social justice work and to elevate my voice as a journalist and as an activist and as a relationship coach. But since April, the doors to the outside world have started to close, some slamming shut, others growing more and more narrow. For Andre, it started with her ads for dominatrix work. At this point, the only website that is left that I can safely use for advertising, and it's only a matter of time before that goes down, but that is the website eros.com, which as of now is still operational, but... um, but none of us really expect that to, to go on much longer. And this is all because of two acronyms. The Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act and Fight Online Sex Trafficking. They're commonly referred to as SESTA-FOSTA. From a legal point of view, these two bills, signed into law in the States on April 11, amend the safe harbours of the Communications Decency Act. And when put into practice, it makes websites liable for what users say and do on their platforms. The target of SESTA Foster isn't people like Andre, not explicitly at least. It puts between its crosshairs anyone based in the US who owns one of these online platforms where people buy and sell sex. The purpose of this is written on the tin. It's trying to stop online sex trafficking. But in the lead-up to SESTA Foster, nobody was quite sure what the impact would be, how effectively it would be enforced, and if adult consensual sex workers like Cameron and Andre would be affected. Then, on April 6, five days before the bill was signed into law, the FBI tipped the first domino. They seized popular listings website Backpage, and in its place was a warning. 
Backpage.com and affiliated websites have been seized as part of an enforcement action by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The U.S. Postal Inspection Service... My phone started to go beep, 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 beep. There's different messages came in. People started to post on Facebook. This site's gone, that site's gone. What's happening now? Cameron works locally, so he expected his ads on Australian websites would be safe. They weren't. There was one that I was on called Rent Boy Now, been on for a long time, and I went to log on and, boom, it was gone. It just didn't exist anymore. The Australian sites persisted for about another 30 or 40 minutes, apparently, after that. Why are Australian websites affected if it's just an American bill? America owns the internet is the basic answer to that. Even domains from Australia, ones ending in .com.au, were shutting down because of their links to the states. And for the people advertising on Backpage, losing that website didn't just mean losing a source of income. They lost the way they communicate between each other. Like many of these websites that are created and utilized specifically for advertising provider services. Provider services being direct client sex work. They also have like provider-only pages and like provider-only logins. And that opens up a whole other community aspect to the platform. These were usually community forums sharing information. Everything from general chats to warnings about bad clients or police stings. Andre says these are vital for providers to work safely. But every time a website is taken down, the community goes along with it. I try and describe it to people like, what if you were a hairstylist and this client came in and like you you did their hair and it was this whole like four hour long process. And at the end of it, they ran out of the shop and didn't pay for their services. It's like, wouldn't you want to tell all of your friends in your industry, all of your community members, all of the identifying information about this person so that they don't also fall victim to, you know, losing like hundreds of dollars. Who is most affected by the Backpage shutdown? I know dozens of sex workers that, that utilize Backpage up until it shut down. All, almost all of them were, again, folks who are members of like the most marginalized populations, the most vulnerable populations within the sex industry, which are, of course, people of color and transgender women. And that's because the Backpage ads have a much or they had a much lower price point in order to get them online and get them running. Folks who couldn't afford to advertise on platforms like Eros would go to Backpage, and that was how they made a living. So it's the marginalized sex workers that are impacted most by the shutdown of Backpage? Absolutely. 150%. It's the marginalized workers that are going to be impacted the most by this bill um, in general, but Backpage is a huge part of that. Do you feel as if sex workers are being intentionally pushed offline? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like the like these these politicians aren't stupid. Like these people aren't stupid. They're just assholes. <laughs> um people just don't want us to exist. After the break, we're going to take a closer look at how the marginalization of sex workers online is part of an ongoing battle for visibility, for legitimacy, and for safety.
Welcome back to Think Digital Futures. My name is Shane Anderson, and this episode is all about SESTA Foster, how one bill from the United States is pushing sex workers around the world offline. It's designed to stop sex trafficking by making website owners criminally responsible for hosting ads on their platforms. But will this end sex trafficking? No, I don't see how it can. This is Eurydice Aroni, Senior Lecturer in Journalism and Sex Worker Activist at the University of Technology, Sydney. For one thing, if you just take the, the case of, of Backpage, at least there was a venue that could be identified as a possible place for traffickers and, and things followed up through that. What you're doing with this is you're just creating chaos. By putting a blanket ban on all sex work online, activists argue Sesta Foster lumps together sex work and sex trafficking. That is, sex work that is consensual and sex trafficking that is forced or coercive. The line between the two seems pretty distinct, but under United States law, the line is intentionally blurred. Andre explains the grey area. Over here, with the exception of a few locations in the state of Nevada, what we refer to as prostitution, escorting, or full service work is illegal uh, across the country. But as John said at the start of the show, sex work is more than just full service. Pegging, which is typically the act of a woman strapping on a dildo and having sex with a man in the ass, I do that as part of my work here in California because the laws in the cities that I work in don't recognize sex as anything beyond penis in vagina, penis in mouth or penis in anus. I'm allowed to legally do that kind of work without it being considered prostitution. Andre says this creates a precarious working situation. Whenever I travel for work, I basically have to look up the local legislation around sex work and see, you know, what what I can and can't do. Listing sites like Backpage host many of these activities that are legal in some places, but illegal in others. Sesta Foster doesn't take this into account. As soon as you tow over the line into the illegal sex trade, the law gets confused as to what counts as trafficking. In Alaska, a woman has been charged with trafficking herself. That's how extreme it can be. In New Orleans, the red light district, the strippers clubs, were closed down under the guise of targeting traffickers within those commercial establishments. Not one incidence of trafficking was found. What about in Australia? What does sex trafficking look like here? Well, we have very few incidents of proven sex trafficking in Australia. In fact, the 2016 Select Committee into the Regulation of Brothels in New South Wales heard evidence from the police. They implied that sex trafficking was going on in, in the brothels in, in New South Wales. Those claims were all have all been rejected. They have no evidence. Trafficking in all forms is an underground industry, so it's impossible to get a reliable figure on just how widespread it is. In fact, one of the claims justifying Sesta Foster, that trafficking is a $9.8 billion industry in the US, was actually proved to have no factual basis. We do know that the majority of sex trafficking victims are female and come from countries with high rates of poverty and gender inequality. 
But it's already so hidden, it's hard to know more than that. And activists are arguing that by forcing sex work offline, Zesta Foster is going to make it even harder to find these victims. But workers and activists also reckon they know how world governments can fight against trafficking. And it's not by burying it. Sex workers want to end sex trafficking just as much as anyone else in the world does, right? But we're just not listened to because there's no one that knows better about when a few like new underage looking girls start popping up on the streets than actual street sex workers. And so there's this amazing opportunity here in the U.S. for law enforcement to collaborate. That collaboration involves basically a 180 on the U.S. government's approach to sex work. Sesta Foster is part of an abolitionist mindset. It's the same mindset that saw alcohol banned during the Prohibition era, a famously failed policy. But abolition is not the only way, and it's certainly not what adult consensual sex workers want. They want decriminalization. Eurydice again. Decriminalization means the removal of laws and the mainstreaming of the sex industry into a framework like any other business. It removes the police. It removes the criminal sanctions. The removal of criminal sanctions means more than not getting arrested at work. Being branded a criminal has other ripple effects. People's children are taken away from them. It can be abused by violent partners. And, you know, I will reveal who and what you are and what you've done as a way of controlling people. If something's decriminalised, it avoids those kind of th traps. And decriminalisation also removes barriers to things like healthcare and support services. We already know that this is what happens when you decriminalise sex work because we have a test case. And it's right here. And by right here, I mean in Sydney, where this show is recorded. There's currently only two places in the world where sex work is decriminalised. One of them is the state of New South Wales, and the other is in New Zealand. Sex work has been decriminalised in New South Wales since 1995. It's meant we can have things like the select committee we talked about before, We can have government oversight and accountability. Plus, it means Cameron's organisation, SWAP, can not only operate visibly, but can actually get government support to offer things like counselling and health services. If it has precedence, if, if it is proven that it does prevent a lot of sex trafficking and there's all these positive arguments for decriminalisation, why are people pushing for abolitionism? Because they hate sex work. It's a moral objection. We're talking about marginalized communities with high populations of people of color and women and trans people. Like, make no mistake about it. They don't want to acknowledge us. They don't want to believe that we're human beings. They just want us to go away. Cameron how his organization's outreach services are affected by the bill. Our presence is on Twitter, it's on social media and it's on our own website. You know, we've made our plans to move elsewhere if those avenues of contacting sex workers are shut down. 
And we've gone to the extraordinary length of inviting the sex workers who are members of SWAP and those who aren't members of SWAP to give us two email addresses because um, most people work on Gmail and Google and Google has um, shown itself to be quite sex worker unfriendly and especially since Foster Sesta, um, they've been going in and removing, for example, people who work on webcams and store their stuff on Google Drive have found their content suddenly deleted from their Google Drives. And that's just in the past two weeks? And that's in the past two weeks, yeah. So what advice are you giving workers then to to prepare for this? First of all, back up absolutely everything that you can back up. Make sure that you've got a plan B and a plan C. If you know any sex workers around you, please reach out to them. See how they're doing. Ask them if they're okay. Ask them if they need anything. Let them know that they're valuable and that they're human beings and that they deserve love and respect and safe working conditions. There are a couple of organizations in the States who are distributing funds to sex workers who have suddenly lost all their income, like the La Strada Emergency Fund in New York. You can find links up on our website, 2scr.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. This show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. Thank you to Cameron, Andre, Eurydice and John for your help with this episode. This show is recorded at 2SER, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. We're also a community radio station, so our listeners are everything to us. If you like this podcast, hit subscribe, share it with a friend or show us some love online. We'll be back again next week with another episode. I'm Shane Anderson. Thank you for listening.